I'm Lindsay Rittenhouse, and you're listening to Ad Age AdLib, weekly discussions with the newsmakers in the marketing, media, and agency industries. Earlier this week, I spoke with Omnicom CEO Scott Hagedorn in a live episode of Ad Age Remotely. We spoke about the post-pandemic role of agencies, Omnicom's efforts around diversity and inclusion, and his outlook for advertising in the second half of the year. But first, today's podcast is brought to you by Acoustic, the company that's helping marketers get back to thinking bigger. When you're enabled by technology and not overwhelmed by it, you get to spend more time doing what really matters, connecting your brand with customers in truly meaningful ways, ways to make people feel something. You can learn more about Acoustic by visiting acoustic.com. Now here's my conversation with Scott. Hi, Scott. Hi. Good to uh, have you here. Thank you. Um, so yeah, so what stage are we in now of the pandemic uh, regarding clients? What what are their concerns right now? Obviously, in the beginning, we heard that clients were pulling back spend. Uh, they were delaying payments. What are, what are we seeing from clients now? Uh, I, I wish that I could think of the pandemic in terms of some linear uh, progression right now that has an endpoint on, on any given day. I think we're probably uh, somewhere on a spectrum between pessimism and, uh, and optimism, um, hopefully with a, with a bit of a dose of pragmatism. Um, you know, Q3 and Q4, for, uh, just from a sheer looking at kind of media activity, uh, Q3 and Q4 are looking much better than Q2. I think uh, kind of Q2 was a, you know, was a, a big dip. Uh, as everybody realized, I think that this is a lot more real than uh, we had been giving it credit for. And uh, the result, just an overall uh, kind of freeze to the system and Q3 and Q4 kind of people, you know, clients, I'd say are a little bit more um, optimistic on uh, on what activity is going to look like. And that varies a lot by, by vertical industry right now. And the ones that are being the most impacted are still kind of holding back. And then some clients are, are spending more because their, their vertical is, is doing better. But I think a, a lot of folks now are looking at uh, next year and kind of trying to plan out what next year is going to look like and, and to forecast out what, a bit of what the future is going to be and what it's going to hold. Um, and that's, that's where we are right now. So when I say pragmatic, um, we, we have, we're trying to, as much as we can get our finger on the pulse of how uh, consumers are feeling and, you know, is the demand going to be there uh, in some, in some categories is the supply going to be there, which is something that we haven't really had to think about um, as you know, advertising and marketing sits somewhere between the demand and the supply and trying to stimulate more demand or trying to point that demand at supply that exists. Okay. Yeah. Um, what about new business? Now, um, a lot of the reviews that we saw when the pandemic first hit, they were either postponed or halted outright. Um, how is new business? Is, are the reviews picking up again? We're starting to see new wins. Parts and Science yeah. had a big win this morning, RB. So yeah. Um, uh, yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. Hearts announced the uh, the RB uh, win today, but um, I, I kind of we look at new business sort of into three buckets right now. Uh, the first is the, as to your point, the delayed stuff. Um, so a lot of the clients that were planning on a pitch sort of have put put a pause on it um, for for a period of time. There are uh, new business activity like uh, Rekha Binkiser that had started before. Uh, the pandemic hit and then concluded during the pandemic and we we're in the process of transitioning that for hearts. And similarly, we've just completed a global transition for PhD of the Diageo business. And that pitch process started before the pandemic uh, became widespread and, and converted though after that. And so we've been transitioning that business. 
Um, and then there's been a ton of activity of pitches that have started uh, and the clients are seeing them through uh, uh, throughout the pandemic. And it's it's challenging. Um, it's hard to build uh, relationships, I think, uh, from a two dimensional basis. And, and ultimately, um, as much as we talk about automation and being able to do everything remotely, the clients ultimately are, are, are you know, they're buying teams, they're buying trust and they're buying relationships and and we're kind of looking at you know how how do we best show that prove that demonstrate it when a lot of these clients have never ever met us and I think everybody's kind of operating um, at the same you know kind of from the same perspective or point uh, a lot of the stuff that has started during the pandemic and concluded during the pandemic it's almost uh, to use a U.S. Um, kind of sports phrase it's sort of the tie goes to the runner I'm seeing a lot of that business actually be retained by the incumbent agencies because I think the fear of um, transitioning to a new team that you really haven't met and don't know is, is just too much to overcome. How has it been transitioning to pitching business remotely? What has been some of kind of the biggest takeaways? Uh, um, you know, I think it started, everybody was shell-shocked and the, the technology support system was there to interconnect everybody, but the... Um, Almost the the energy and the kind of group think, whatever you want to call it, um, group consciousness that comes from working together with the team in the room. Um, it was hard to hard to get that going remotely. On some of the pitches that we've been doing lately, I, I feel a little bit of that vibe, and people are able to respectfully kind of build on each other's thinking uh, without being able to see each other's body language and uh, who's leaning in and who's leaning out. Um, I'd say our teams have gotten more agile uh, in terms of being nimble, being quick, kind of trying to look for more nonverbal than verbal cues uh, remotely, but it's challenging. And then when you uh, introduce like streaming and everybody's individualized internet connections into the mix, it, it can be it can be really challenging to try to kind of get to get to groupthink. Um, and you know, but we're we're kind of we're going through it. I think you know we've there's a cottage industry. I'd say of WeChat plus Zoom that's popped up on how you can you know be talking to your team while you're still presenting in real time and uh, it's it's kind of fascinating how that how the tech has has infiltrated the, these discussions um, but it's just I think it's changed the the nature of pitching um, but again I, I come back to like you know, the the critical thing right now is how do you um, how do you build trust and how do you make sure that you're um you know that that, that the clients feel confident in the team that they're buying. Um, and, and, and some of it, I, I know, you know, maybe we're going to talk a little bit about what the future of work looks like and, and you know, how, what are we planning for? But um, I'm still a huge believer that the teams are going to have to get together um, functionally in a room and, and, and work. I mean, that's where that's why people join agencies. It's a bit of the uh, spree de core, I'd say, of, of being able to work with teams and elevate work and also a reason clients buy agencies. They're, act, they're not buying the individuals. They're buying how the team can work and what the team can do and deliver. Um, and, and some aspects of that are still going to have to happen in person. Um, so right now, even though everything is remote, um, some of the work we're doing, the remote and the tech-enabled side of it is just a, a patch until we can start getting everybody back together again. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, so what are the biggest impacts that you're seeing COVID has had on the media landscape just in general? Um, I'd say, you know, there's there's definitely, I, I think, more attention being paid to streaming. Um, 
and streaming uh, and addressable channels are getting now more a little bit more of their due um, or, or fair shake. I, th- I think trying to look at now almost all media channels being streaming enabled and uh, kind of identity based currencies being important. And, uh, you know, so I think a lot of there's a lot of acceleration, I'd say, towards streaming and towards figuring out how to have a heavier mix in streaming and also like like looking at uh People are desperate for new content as something to do. And I think they're following as much as they can on, on streaming. You know, there's uh, some of the smarter folks on our team, uh, especially in the investment side, like Johan Basrup, who's our global head of investment. Um, are, we're predicting a, uh, a shortfall right now in the media space, potentially of supply uh, since production has been shut down. You know, are, is there going to be a, uh, a lack of supply uh, for the amount of content demand that's out there? And again, kind of coming back to like, like thinking about supply and demand dynamics. Um, and right now, you people are super hungry. Like I've never seen more review websites for Netflix content and Amazon Prime content, um, HBO Max content, Disney Plus content. Um, everybody's kind of you know, looking for whatever, anything, something new coming out that they can, they can kind of divert their attention towards. And so we're, we're tracking that we're kind of rolling a lot more streaming and OTT into our, um, into our upfront deals. Um, and that, yeah, that's, that's a, there's a big focus on that. I think uh, it'll be, you know, the other interesting thing is kind of looking uh, as some of the social um, injustice uh, content um, as, and movements have been out there on how people are feeling about um, social media channels and are they turning on or turning off to more social media, especially as the election cycle starting to crank up in the U.S. Um, and, and just kind of looking at, at what's happening there. And, you know, are, are people avoiding the platforms because they're becoming too toxic or are they a little bit addicted to the negative content and the hyperbolic content that are on social media platforms and feel like they have to be on Twitter and on Facebook and on Instagram more and more and more to get their fix. Um, so that's, you know, just speaking kind of to some media trends, those are some things that we're looking at. Yeah. You know, talking about uh, the social injustice movement and, you know, as we head into the election and everything, you know, brand safety is always a big issue. I mean, how are you kind of guiding your clients through some of maybe their concerns or what are their concerns there? Um, you know, uh, yeah, we've so we we did an initiative that we called CASA, which was the Council uh, on Accountable Social Advertising. And what we have tried to do um, from from our position is, you know, and this this will rewind the tape a little bit or I'll run the tape a little bit to um, some of the work we did as a holding company when the YouTube brand safety crisis hit. Um, we followed the other holding companies initially and just, you know, kind of were like outraged and outcry and one impression's too many. And, um, and then we sat back on it a little bit and said, you know, unless we try to do something to help here, we're not really fixing any kind of the problem and we're not meeting anybody halfway. Um, and so we, we started working towards, you know, what a fix could like and work, look like and working with with Google on that. And this is a while ago, and it's similar to some of the other things we've dealt with, with viewability and fraud and stuff like that, which is like, we would rather take more of a product and policy oriented approach. And so with, with Facebook in particular, recently, um, what we wanted to do was work with their product and policy teams to try to build out a framework for, um, for testing, uh, a framework for kind of understanding what's acceptable and not acceptable and putting some controls relative to content adjacency and looking at how we could then 
establish a framework that the one we built actually has uh, has four pillars. It has uh, pre-bid adjacency control. It has post-bid um, auditing capability, third-party verification of both that pre and post, and then um, some overall better reporting on what's happening on the platforms overall with content violations and or flagging of potential content violations. And we've, you know, we didn't, we thought it would be good to talk to Facebook about it, but also to talk to Twitter about it, to talk to Reddit about it, Snap, TikTok, and Pinterest, and and Google. Um, and we've gotten pretty much everyone aligned across the four pillars and are hoping to make some meaningful change. But our, our view has been that we, you know, we're, we're to some degrees a little bit like a hedge fund manager of media where we need to try to provide clients with the best um, advice on mechanically how these platforms all work and, you know, how your, you know, what your ads are going to be potentially adjacent to, how, how do they work? How do you mitigate, you know, if you have a hundred percent, like if your view is very like zero impressions being adjacent to anything um, that could be, you know, uh, potentially violate a content, uh, like a policy violation or some content that, that is wrong being adjacent to it is something that we can't tolerate. You know, one impression is too many. We want to help clients understand, like, what are the trade-offs potentially of, of activating some of the different ways that, that inventory is activated and how to, how to prevent that. Um, and so we're very much kind of trying to, you know, make sure that mechanically we're counseling clients to, so that they know their risk and they also know the potential reward and, and cause it, some of the risk comes against, uh, dimensions of cost when it comes to media and that's how they're, you know, trying, they're weighting some of the decisions that, that they have to make. Alexis on Twitter asks, what is the outlook for hopeful interns and entry-level job seekers across the industry as we navigate this pandemic? In the beginning, these opportunities seem to diminish, but are they making a comeback? Not now. When should we anticipate on them doing, doing so? Uh, yeah, I think that um, I would imagine that there'll be some some in, some um, internships opening back up in the fall. I can only speak for, for Omnicom, but I think that we'll We'll have some stuff opening in the fall. The The worst of the pandemic for this year was in Q2. So that was almost leading into the summer. So it definitely slowed down, I think, some of our programs there. Um, and then I think we're, we're opening. I know we're opening some up in, uh, in the fall, um, just kind of thinking about it against the school year. Um, relative to entry level positions, that's a that's a great question. I, I the thing that one of the things that keeps me up at night is, you know, we were onboarding, you know, a couple pretty big clients right now. And some of the people that are joining the teams or, or joining an agency are joining for the first time remotely. Um, and, you know, I, I get concerned. I know we didn't pre-plan for somebody joining our organization completely remotely and for understanding, um, you know, what we're all about and what we think makes us different and what it's like to work as, you know, knitted into the fabric of the teams. And, we're trying to pivot how we work as much as we can to try to make sure that there's, you know, some sense of inclusion and community and that, you know, that, that new team members get to feel a little bit of what we hope our special sauce or our differentiators to be in the market. Um, and that's, that's a, that's a challenging thing. And the other thing that I'm, you know, I'm very um, thoughtful about right now is I, I'm, is thinking through like functionally, why people are returning to the office. And when I say functionally, what, what functions do they come back into the office to physically do and what can be done remotely? Um, 
and uh, you know, thinking about thinking about new talent and functions. Um, I'm also when I say that I'm, I'm also kind of thinking through what functions can we automate. Because I've got to believe that, or I know that for talent joining in an organization that might be coming in at an entry level to find out, you know, you're getting a job in marketing, but what you're really getting a job in is, is data processing and moving data from one Excel spreadsheet to another or one legacy system to another and, and trying to do that remotely while you're like, hey, I, I have some big strategy ideas here. I have some some ideas on changing a client's business and for us to say, no, 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 we just want you to work remotely and we just want you to move data from this spreadsheet to this legacy system has to be uh, very, um, you know, pull the wind out of your sails uh, and very um, disheartening. And so we, we, we're having a hard look at that um, and we'll continue to do that. I think hopefully after the, after the pandemic, because I want to try to root out as much rote jobs and rote processing jobs as we can so that for folks that are joining from an entry level perspective, they get to contribute um, from a you know to their ideas and their thinking in, into into their clients' business challenges. Yeah, and um, there's also been obviously a big call for agencies to diversify their ranks. I mean, what is OMG's plans to improve? You can shed any light on the plans you guys have in place to improve diversity, equity, equity and inclusion for people of color in the industry. Sure. Um, you know, in 2009, Omnicom hired our first, uh, our, our chief diversity officer, Tiffany Warren, who's a good friend of mine. And uh, we just announced um, Open 2.0, which is an eight pronged uh, initiative. The first is we're expanding our, um, what we call our open leadership across every, each one of the, uh, the five families, if you will, within Omnicom. Um, and so we, we have dedicated resources and, that are managing the programs and kind of managing our thinking and, and holding us accountable. So the first is like we're expanding our open leadership. The second is uh, um, looking at how we're going to attract and retain more talent. And when I mentioned that um, entry level position point in data processing, that actually came from our black leadership network at Omnicom Media Group because um, we were talking about what it's going to take to recruit in more talented folks from a diversity perspective. And they said, Scott, you know, you got to understand that the entry level jobs aren't as attractive as we need them to be. Um, and it's not just about, you know, increasing the numbers within our ranks, but also making sure that the positions that we're creating are attractive to the people that we want to recruit in. Um, the other two are developing and retaining those, those talents that we bring in. The fifth one is making sure the clients are aware of what programs we have in place. Um, the sixth one is uh, giving back to the community. Um, and one, that's one of the things that we were, you know, in the wake of, um, the, you know, what was happening with Black Lives Matter and all the social injustice stuff in the U.S. We wanted to do something very meaningful at the Omnicom Media Group level. Um, our plan was to try to help organize and rebuild um, communities, um, the communities that are, we have offices in that were the hardest hit by the protests um, and, you know, and some of the damage that came from the riots that were associated with them. But um we couldn't we couldn't implement them because of COVID. Um, we had to divert some of the funding and our thinking at the community level, um, but we did that in partnership with the Black Lives Matter our our, our BLN um, leadership internally. Uh, and then the other two are transparency and accountability. Um, so we're reporting out a lot more data on how our teams are structured and how we're tracking towards our diversity, our, our DEI goals. Um, and then also just, you know, the final one is accountable, uh, making sure that we're accountable, like John Wren is holding all of us accountable to driving these programs and working with Tiffany to make sure that we implement them. Um, 
And I, I personally feel my, my higher order of accountability is, is to the team um, themselves and the talent themselves to make sure they, they know that, you know, that this is something that we take very seriously and that, um, that ultimately I'm accountable to the teams because uh, it's ultimately the talent and the teams that deliver for the clients. Um, the thing that we we don't have hard coded in that I'm um, also thinking about strategically is then you know once we you know fulfill on this or keep working at fulfilling on a more diverse workforce, how does that diversity ultimately show up in the output and the work that we're doing for our clients? Um, and so that's 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 the other thing. It's like you know I want to make sure that the the team is in place and they feel like they're doing really good, interesting work where they feel fulfilled, fulfilled, but also like how's that diversity manifest itself in, in the work that we do for our clients and our strategic thinking and thought leadership. When you say John Wren, um, CEO of Omnicom group is holding everyone accountable. Is, does that mean, or is it time tied to compensation or how is he holding you guys accountable? Uh, yeah. I'm, you know, I, I don't know if it's going to be, um, tied to our compensation or not. Um, but you know, we're, we're a publicly held company. Um, but, it, it, you know, it'll be, I think it'll be tied to whether or not we're employed um, and, and whether or not, you know, when I say accountable, though, it's like, you know, it's something that we have to report out on um, that it goes into our annual and, you know, kind of business plans that we then update and kind of provide a report on on a monthly basis on on how we're doing and how we're tracking and what are we hearing and, you know, what are we hearing from the staff? And it, it's something that we, we ultimately, we ultimately talk about um, and that we're, you know, we're thoughtful about. Um, and I, you know, at the end of the day, I think you know, that that level of accountability is not, you know, it, it's the, the, the comments are out there. There's no, um, you know, because of, I think social media and even social media applied to, marketing and advertising spaces, people, people are talking and they, the content is ultimately out there. Um, and so, you know, if you're, if you're not, uh, fulfilling on, you know, your mission and you're not fulfilling on the goals that have been provided to you and the things that you've committed to, you'll, you'll get called out on it more often than not. We have another audience question. Um, it's Matria on LinkedIn. She says, how have you built trust remotely? Yeah, you can't really do a remote trust fall, or if you could, you know, it's 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 uh, it's going to be like a gym fail. Um, well, I mean, so we some of it is like you have to you have to figure out how to do. Um, I think an element almost of speed dating uh, with clients from a new business perspective to get to know the people that they're you're proposing for them. Um, and there's a lot of desk work on terms of data mining, looking for connections, um, you know, who, who have the clients worked with before? Um, well, you know, what's the tenure, what's the relationships? You know, a lot of times too, it's quickly learning, I think, uh, and trying to ask us some smart questions of the clients on how do they like to work, you know, and looking almost like doing not a Myers-Briggs type uh, analysis, but just understanding a little bit about, you know, how, how's the client, you know, how do they like to work? How do they like to work at the group level, at the individual level and figuring out um, how to structure the right team um, around them? And I've had to almost go to school a little bit on organizational design thinking and how you can do that in a, um, a completely remote way. Um, and but it's it, some of it is almost like speed dating. So, you know, and, and, and getting them getting them feeling like that they could trust this person, they could work with this person that 
this person is, you know, if something else should go wrong in 2020, that this is somebody that they could text at one in the morning and at least by the next day at, you know, 8 a.m., 7 a.m., they'll have had a response. Um, are there any plans to open the offices or how, how is that kind of <laughs> looking? Yeah, no, m- most of our offices are, are open. Um, so we've, we reopened them on a state by state basis with the guidance from the state. Um, it, the guidance from the state though is challenging because it's typically like a percent of the staff are allowed to come back and, and be, you know, the, the conference rooms by and large aren't reopened. And then there's a percent of staff that are allowed to come back. And I think that that is like, unfortunately, almost industrial era thinking in the U S like we can only, you know, turn the, you know, the, the plant on to have 25% output or only 25% of the staff should come in. And you start thinking like, well, what is the 25% of my job that I would do in the office? Um, and this is some of the work we're, start, we're starting to do is thinking through like, what is the deep work that functionally we need to be opening our offices back up to do? And what, you know, how do you get the teams back together to do that deep work? And then what functions of their job can be done remotely or at home? And, um, and that, you know, so the offices are reopened. We're not mandating that anybody has to go in. And then the, uh, you know, I'm a, I'm a dad, I've got a nine-year-old and a seven-year-old, um, and, and the school situation for a lot of our employees is, is touch and go on a state by state basis. And we have to be extremely thoughtful and, um, and aware of that. And that's why, you know, I'm, 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 as you can tell, hopefully, or maybe it's taken up too much of the real estate of this, this discussion or this stream, I'm super focused on like, what are the tasks? What are the functions that people need to do in the office? So then when they commit their time to go in, the team gets something out of it, the clients get something out of it, and they get something out of it. And they're not, you know, they're not going in just to check the box that they completed doing some task arbitrarily and that they had to do in the office. I think we have time for one more question. So I'm going to take this from the audience. It's Rohit on LinkedIn. In your opinion, what OTT or social media platform will gain most popularity for market penetration in a post-COVID scenario and why? Ooh, that's a good one. Um, Well, we are unfortunately out of time, but thank you so much, Scott, for joining us. And thank you, audience, for watching and submitting your questions. Uh, This has been another episode of Remotely. That was Scott Hagedorn, CEO of Omnicom, and I'm Lindsay Rittenhouse, agency reporter at Ad Age. I want to thank our producer, Max Sternlicht, and invite you to subscribe to the AdLib podcast on Spotify, Pandora, Apple, or wherever you get your podcasts. See you next week.